Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Hey, good morning. I'm Jason, and uh, this is the second message in Matthew chapter 2 called Choosing a King. I don't usually start this way, but my son made a highlight video from last week's sermon. So really quickly, we're going to just play a quick video. BZ, do you have that ready to go? All right, go ahead. Uh-oh. Take two. If it doesn't work after this, we'll move on. <laughs> all right, no sound. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all good. So Henry, uh, after we last week talked about the Magi, he remembered, it reminded him of this video we watch at home every Christmas from a series of videos called What's in the Bible? And it's like these puppets, you know, talking about what's in the Bible. And there's a great scene in it where this one puppet is talking about his younger brother puppet, whose name is Pierre, and he says, Pierre was so confused that for a whole year he thought the wise men followed the star to the North Pole to see the baby nutcracker. So, <laughs> so after teaching about the Magi last week, Henry sent me this video that like transitioned from me teaching that to this guy talking about his little brother Pierre. So anyway, we thought that was funny. It didn't work out, but that's okay. Um, today we are continuing in Matthew 2, uh, and last week we mentioned just in passing a character named Herod, Herod the king. And I'm going to try to be careful about calling him exactly that, Herod the king, not King Herod. And there's a reason for that. Uh, he's going to be more of our focus today, although this isn't really a lesson on Herod, it's a lesson on Jesus. But we're going to start with focusing on Herod and who he was and how he plays a part in this whole story. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into the passage. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for today and what you have for us to hear this morning, Lord. I'm thankful uh, that this message is not just for, uh, for the people hearing my voice right now, Lord, but it's for me too. And I'm thank thankful, Lord, that you have given each one of us a challenge this morning to follow you in faith, Lord, and I ask that you would help us each in our hearts to experience the, the miracle of a changed heart that we might encourage, step out in faith to follow you as our King, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's start by reading the passage. This is Matthew 2, uh, it says here verse 12, but I think it's actually 13, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, you'll find it. It's Matthew chapter 2, starting somewhere in that neighborhood. And it says this, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, this is actually starting in verse 3, isn't it? They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That was, what we, that was part of what we covered last week. Now we jump to verse 12 or 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And it finishes out through to verse 23, and we'll get there in a little bit. Today's message, for those of you who are note takers, is going to be kind of... uh, organized like a book. We're going to do this in three chapters and an epilogue. So we're going to start with chapter one, which is called Silent Night, Violent Night, or Herod's Kingdom Was a Scary Place. Okay, so um, I love teaching in my messages. You guys have probably caught on to this. I love teaching biblical history. I wrestle with whether and how much time I should spend on biblical history, because on the one hand, I want to give you something practical that you can use today, that you can apply to your lives today. And we're going to do that. But on the other hand, when we look at history and culture or anything else that provides some sort of context for the passage that we're studying, I really believe that it heightens our sense of wonder at Scripture. I think it gives us a better understanding of the original audience and what they were thinking when they read or heard this passage for the first time. It helps us think like they thought, and it helps us to see familiar things in new ways. So this chapter one is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, and then we'll get into the application. I called it Silent Night, Violent Night because one of the most impactful messages I ever heard on this chapter was called exactly that. I stole the title from someone else. It was taught by a pastor named Rockwell Dilliman at the Allegheny Center Alliance Church on the north side of Pittsburgh many, many years ago. And it may surprise you that it was super impactful to me because I don't actually remember any of the points that he was trying to make when he taught that sermon. I don't really remember what the point of it was, but the way it impacted me was that it massively changed how I thought of Mary and Joseph and what they experienced as they followed God's will at this time in history. My vision changed from sweet Mother Mary in her pretty little head covering, kneeling in the hay next to like a glowing uh, manger with Joseph and the animals quietly standing nearby that we all see in the pictures of nativity scenes to something I think more realistic that was extremely volatile and violent and terrifying. And most of that situation, that horrible situation, was created by a person named Herod, Herod the king. Herod Antipas, or Herod the first, or as he called himself, Herod the Great, 
was born in 72 BC and died sometime around the year one. We're not exactly sure when he died, but he was a career politician. He was born into a prominent family that had ties to Rome, and he played his cards right throughout his life, took uh, advantage of situations as they arose, and he, he rose through the ranks until finally in the year 36 BC, at the age of 36, he was named as king over Judea by Caesar Augustus. His kingship, his role in that position, had absolutely nothing to do with his Jewish, Jewish heritage. He was not connected to the lineage of kings at all. In fact, he was actually only half Jewish on his father's side, and that only because a few generations before he was born, his family on his father's side was forced to convert to Judaism. So he was sort of Jewish, but not really. And he was named to be king apart from any actual historical lineage. Herod nowadays is remembered for two things, pretty much. For building stuff, he built lots of stuff, and for killing babies. In fact, a couple of my family members were, had the opportunity to travel to Israel a couple years ago, and there were a number of Herods in uh, the history of Israel. And so they give them kind of different nicknames to tell them apart when they're talking about them. And every time they would talk about this Herod, they would just refer to him as Herod the baby killer. So for someone who cared so much about his power and position and, uh, you know, what, what's the word I'm looking for? His... Uh, his legacy, thank you, whoever said that in the back, his legacy, his legacy is now Herod the baby killer. But he did build a ton of things, and he accomplished most of that, those building projects through forced slave labor. He built a place called Masada, which you should look up because, in my opinion, it should be listed as one of the wonders of the world. He built the entire city of Caesarea Maritima in his lifetime. It didn't exist, and he built the whole thing. He built nine palaces including one called Herodium, which is just totally amazing. But most importantly, he's the one who had the temple rebuilt. The first temple in Jerusalem was built by Solomon, but it was destroyed at the time of the exile. And Herod was the one who rebuilt the temple and expanded the area on the Temple Mount to make it the most prominent building in all of Jerusalem. None of those building projects, though, make him great or even very good, but they did leave a lasting mark on the nation of Israel that you can still see today. But what was Herod like as a person? Well, I want to focus on that very first sentence that we read in the passage today that said, when Herod heard this, when he heard the news of the newborn king of the Jews, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, it's pretty easy to understand why Herod would be troubled. I mean, any king in their position would be troubled if they heard that someone else was born who was given their title. So we, that makes sense. But why would all Jerusalem be troubled with him? Well, first of all, it tells us that they also heard the news. The news of this newborn king had gotten out. And there were whispers all over the city of Jerusalem of what was going to happen. And, and I thought at first, why, why the word troubled? Why would the people of Jerusalem 
be troubled because they really gravely disliked Herod. You would think that this would be good news to them that a new king had been born, but it wasn't. They had put two and two together. They had looked at Herod and the things he had done in his life, and they realized that the news of a newborn king was going to mean trouble for Jerusalem because of Herod. He was a tyrant. Herod's accomplishments, if you want to call them that, were driven by and tainted by his ruthlessness. In his rise to power, he had executed his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, and three of his own sons just to preserve his position. He was married nine times, some of those simultaneously and most of them just for political gain, to get power and have associates with other powerful people. He cared far more about his power and his position and his relationship with Rome than he did about the Jewish people that he was ruling over. Back in that day, um, if someone died, their possessions, their wealth, sometimes their livelihood would pass on to someone else in their family. But if there was no one else for those things in, left in the family for those things to pass on to, then all of their possessions would go into the treasury of the king. And one of the ways Herod was able to have the wealth to build all the things that he built was that if someone got on the wrong side of Herod, he would not only have them killed, but he would have everyone in their family killed. Therefore, all of those possessions had nowhere to go except into the king's treasury. And so it was a terrifying time to live because you could be on the wrong side of Herod for any reason or no reason at all. Death and the threat of death was common and fear was constant. So that's a pretty bleak picture, right? It's not something, thankfully, that we deal with now in 2023 in the place that we live. But that's the context of all of this. Now, let's turn the page to chapter 2, which is called The Faith to Obey, or Things Are Not Always As They Appear. Mary and Joseph were navigating this situation in their lives in the context of the terror of Herod the king. And what were they acting on? Why were they doing the things that they were doing? Well, let's remind ourselves first what Mary was told. We got to look actually in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 27. And I'm going to kind of jump around. This is from 27 to 38, but I'm just going to kind of hit certain places. So if you're following along, you're going to have to find where I am. But starting in verse 27, it says this. And he came to her. This is an angel. Mary met an angel. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, did you hear that already there are three indications in that passage that Jesus is king? Jesus is going to be this king. It refers to the throne of David. It refers to him reigning over the house of Jacob. And it says that he will have a never-ending kingdom. Three references to a kingdom. And this coming 
while Herod is the king in Jerusalem. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, granted, after she received this message, at some point after this, she found herself to be pregnant. So that's a pretty huge hint that what she heard from this angel was true, right? Like, we don't want to dismiss that. That's pretty obvious evidence that what she heard was true. But also think for a moment, how long can we imagine that exchange took place? How long passed during this conversation? A few minutes, maybe? She meets this complete stranger who tells her all of these things. She responds, and then he's gone. And then she's back to her reality. And what about Joseph? What was he told? Well, in Matthew 1, verse 19, it says this, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. I don't know about you, but I've had some weird dreams in my lifetime, okay? Like weird dreams. And a lot of times when I have weird dreams, it's because of something that happened during the day. Like I'm thinking about something, maybe I'm a little stressed about something, maybe something happens that's kind of odd. And then that night I have a dream, and it's like somehow part of that dream. If I were Joseph... And I had been considering these things, like what in the world am I going to do about this engagement? What am I going to do about this situation for this, with this woman who I'm going to marry, but I haven't married yet, and now she's pregnant? If I was, if I was him and I had this dream, I probably would have just like dismissed it as like just something weird that happened, you know? Like maybe I ate some bad hummus or something, you know? And then, and I've got these things on my mind, and so... I have this dream. But they didn't do that. They had these brief, they were amazing encounters, but they were brief encounters and they were nothing compared to their constant reality as far as timing goes. Consider, their, consider the reality that they lived in in comparison to these brief encounters. They had evidence of Herod's power all around them. It was something that they lived with all the time. And we often, when we think about this situation, Mary being pregnant, even though she was a virgin, we often think about the social stigma that would have come with that, the um, kind of, I don't want to call it embarrassment or shame because they knew better, but there would have been this pressure from people around them, kind of like an implied shame. You know what I'm saying? That they had to deal with all the time being, with her being a woman who's not married but pregnant. And they pr most people in her community were probably not ready to believe that she was still a virgin, even though she was pregnant. And we've, we've considered that in, before when we thought of this, these two. But also consider this. With Herod being the way he was, with the world being the way it was at that time, 
how could they even talk about the real reason that she was pregnant? How do you tell people around you that you've been visited by the Lord and he's told you that the child you're carrying is gonna be the one who sits on David's throne forever? How do you say that when Herod will kill people for any reason? Like what if that word gets out and Herod finds out? That would be putting Mary and Joseph and their entire families in danger. And I'm, that had to have been on their mind. How do you, if you're Joseph, knowing what he knows, how do you defend Mary's honor publicly when the possibility exists that the word is gonna get around and your entire family could be wiped out by Herod because it happened all the time. And so in the middle of all of that, this decree goes out that a census is to be taken and they have to leave Nazareth. And Nazareth is in the north and Bethlehem is in the south. It's just south of Jerusalem. So they pack up their things and they leave and this is what they see along the way on their travel south. They pass right by the entire city of Caesarea Maritima that Herod built. They, built, they pass by uh, numerous places where Herod won military conflicts on his rise to power. They pass a number of his palaces. They pass right by Jerusalem with the huge temple newly restored, this huge symbol of Herod's power right up there on top of the mountain. They pass actually in close proximity to Herod himself in his palace in Jerusalem. And they pass by Herodium, this other palace south of Jerusalem that not only was incredibly impressive as it sat up on top of this mountain, but Herod actually built the mountain it was sitting on. He had the mountain manufactured to put this palace on top of it. Those are unbelievable signs of worldly power. And they walk by all of those things to end up in a stable probably in a cave in a tiny little town. And that's the shocking thing about what they did. Because they looked at all of that. They looked at this whole situation, all the input that they had, and they made the decision that the king in the palace was not the king they were going to follow. And instead, the king in the stable, in the cave, in the manger was the real king. And that's the one they were going to obey. They compared the signs of Herod's power with what the Lord had given them. And they decided that the revealed word of God was the surer thing. It was like they put the two things on a scale and what the Lord had to say about this situation way outweighed everything they were seeing from Herod's influence and his power. And here's why. Here's why. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, through the lens of the gift of faith, Mary and Joseph realized that things were not what they seemed. They were looking at all of these things around them, and they decided that Herod was not what he seemed to be. And do you hear what I'm saying? Because if they could do that, if they could look at all of that and by faith come to that conclusion, then so can we. So can we. Hebrews 11, which that verse is 
the beginning of, is filled with a long list of people who acted not by what they could see, but by what they hoped for. And remember in the Bible, when we use the word hope, it's not like, I hope this happens. I think it might. I'm not sure. I hope it does. In scriptural hope is something you are convinced of. It is a sure thing. And they were acting on what they were convinced of, even though they couldn't see it. Mary and Joseph could easily be added to that list in Hebrews 11. And if they can walk that way, so can we. Now, there is a danger, please listen, there is a danger in applying this idea to every situation in our lives that we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable. Please see, when we look at the lives of Joseph and Mary and this situation with Herod, they did not have an easy ride, not ever, okay? Nor did anyone else in Hebrews 11. So the lesson for us when we look at this is to seek God's will for our lives. Seek it in his word. Seek it through prayer. And then when we find it, and this is the best place to find it, this is the most, the Lord has given us this gift to see what he's doing in this place and we can discern his will in this book. When we find it, then we should act. We should do something. We should step out in faith. For those of us who are believers, who maybe have been walking with the Lord for a long time, maybe the Lord is calling us to do something. Maybe he's been nagging at you for a long time to do something that you've been afraid to do. If there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, then maybe that act of faith is to do something you've never done before and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. Is this all real? Is what I'm hearing really the truth? He'll let you know if you ask. And we do that while we disregard all of the palaces and the powers and the worldly influences that would try to tell us that we can't or that it's impossible. All of the Herods in this world that would say, what the Lord is calling you to do is not possible. Because if we look back in Luke chapter one, when the angel was speaking to Mary, do you remember what, I passed over this on purpose because I wanted to put it here, but do you remember what the angel said to her when she said, how is this possible? How is it possible that I'm gonna have this child when I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, for nothing will be impossible with God. And what was her response to that? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She chose to follow the truth of what she was hearing from the Lord instead of all of the influences around her. That was her response. Joseph's response, he doesn't respond with his mouth, at least not that we get in Scripture. It instead says that he did all that the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. Mary responded with her mouth. Joseph, we see, responded with his life. I'm sure they both did both of those things. But that's the evidence we get in Scripture. So what is our response going to be? Kay asked that question this morning when we were doing communion. How are we going to respond to the holiness of God? What is our response going to be despite our circumstances? In other words, which king are we going to choose to follow? Mary and Joseph had to decide 
which king was going to influence their lives more. We have to make that same decision. Which king are we going to choose? Will we follow what we see? Will we follow the king in the palace? Will we follow the worldly pressures that are all around us? Or will we respond in faith and proclaim with our mouth and with our lives that the baby in the stable, in the manger, is the king that we're going to follow? I hope we choose the latter. But let's move on to chapter 3. Let's move on to chapter 3. And by the way, I wish I had a big old mirror sitting right here. Because when I say these things to you that I'm intending to be challenging, when I say things like, which king are you going to follow? I need to say that to myself too. Like I need a big mirror right here so that when I, can, when I say those things, I know that it's coming to me too. Because I need to hear it just as much. Chapter 3 is he is faithful to his word and he provides a way of escape. I would not be a very good pastor if... I challenged you in the way that I just did and didn't recognize that that can be a scary thing. And so I want to encourage you that even though it can be difficult to make that step in faith, the Lord provides a way of escape. We're going to get into that in a moment, but I want to mention something else. In this passage today, the latter half of chapter 2, there are three little pieces that we often call prophecies, but I kind of want to avoid calling them that today because they're not exactly that. They're not exactly something that you can point to in the Old Testament and say, this is exactly fulfilled. They said this exact thing was going to happen and now it's happened. It's kind of like that, but it's not really. What I think is really happening is Matthew is making connections for his original audience, remember his original audience would have been like first century Jewish people who grew up Jewish their whole lives. And so he's making connections for those original readers or hearers with the account of Jesus and Old Testament passages that they would have been very, very familiar with. It would be like if I said to you, George Washington, and because you've, at least I think most of you, have lived in the United States your whole lives, you have an instant view in your mind of what that word means to you. Most of you, I don't think, probably envisioned the words George Washington. Like when I say George Washington, you may think like the portrait of George Washington, or you may think of him on the front of the boat crossing the Delaware, or maybe sitting on a horse, or in the White House, or whatever. There's like some vision of George Washington that means something to you. And that's what Matthew's doing. When he mentions these passages from the Old Testament, it would have instantly given his original audience like a picture of the connection he's making with Jesus. And I want to show you what those things are. But to get there, we got to talk about this really horrible incident that Herod, this terrible crime that Herod commits, that in order to preserve power, to hold on to his position, he stoops to the disgusting act of murdering children. And there is no way to soften what he did. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But in my mind, it's magnified by a million when you consider the fact that he knew exactly who he was trying to kill. As he tried to kill, as he did kill numerous children, he was after one in particular, and he knew who it was. He didn't know the name, but he had been informed that this 
king of the Jews, this newborn king of the Jews, was potentially the Christ, the Messiah, the hope of the people that he ruled, the blessing to every nation. He knew all of that, and he came to the conclusion that he'd rather kill him to preserve his own power. So it was an extremely terrible act. It, uh, listen what the Lord did, though, in it. Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, there are two ways we can look at this passage. One is kind of like a more globally beneficial way to help us understand Scripture as a whole. And then another is a more practical way. And I want to get to the practical way in a minute. But let's look at the big picture thing for a moment. Do you realize that the New Testament Herod that we've been talking about today is a parallel of the Old Testament Pharaoh? He's a parallel with Pharaoh. Both were oppressing tyrants. Both ignored the message of God that was brought to them. Both reacted badly to any challenge to their power. And both found the solution to hold on to their power in killing Hebrew children. So there's this exact parallel between Herod and Pharaoh. But the point of this passage, I think that Matthew, the reason he includes this is not just so that we can see that parallel, but because he wants to show us who Jesus is within that comparison. And that brings us to this like first kind of hyperlink passage where he says something about the Old Testament that would have like opened the eyes of his first reader to what he was talking about. He says, uh, this was, to, fill what was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And he's referring to a prophecy in Hosea chapter 11 that says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So when a first century Jewish person hears that, they automatically think of the Exodus when the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt and rescued from that place. And who led them out of there? Moses, right? Moses was sent to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so Matthew is identifying, and he's going to do it again a couple of times, he's identifying Jesus, the deliverer, with Moses, the Old Testament deliverer. What's really crazy to me um, and I would have never thought of this myself. I was listening to someone preach on this uh, chapter and he said this thing and I was like, whoa, never thought of that. When Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, Egypt was a terrible place of oppression, right? They needed to be rescued out of Egypt. Well, now here in Matthew 2, the whole thing has been reversed. Israel is now in the place of Egypt. Israel has declined and become so terrible and has turned from the Lord so greatly that their Messiah needs to be rescued out of Israel. Egypt, or well, Israel is now Egypt. And 
Joseph and Mary and Jesus are being rescued out of Israel, and of all places, they're finding safety in Egypt. And so that would have been like massively impactful to his first audience, his original intended audience. You got to remember that these people revered Moses. They loved him and his law. And Matthew is saying, you thought Moses was great? Wait till you see what this guy's going to do. Wait till I tell you what Jesus accomplished. The other two Old Testament passages that connect with what's happening in Matthew 2 is, uh, starting in verse 17, it says this, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is right after Herod has his people murder these children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area. And Matthew is drawing attention to a passage in Jeremiah 31. And it's referring to this place called Ramah, which is actually very near Bethlehem. And what Ramah was was a gathering place for Jewish people before they were taken off to Babylon at the exile. It was like almost like they were herded there like cattle before they were all taken away. And Jeremiah in chapter 31 paints this picture of Rachel, the mother of Israel. That's how the Israelites would have thought of her. She's the mother of Israel. She's buried nearby and from her grave, she is weeping uncontrollably. She cannot be comforted because her people are being taken away. And Matthew is not only like identifying that moment with the killing of these children in Matthew 2, but he's also bringing an element of hope. And this is what's really amazing because that prophecy in Jeremiah 31 is in verse 15. Verse 16 says this, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. He's referring to the exile. They're going to be taken away, but they'll be back. There's hope. And in the same way, Matthew's making this connection. This terrible thing has happened. The Messiah has had to escape. He's coming back. And sure enough, in the last part of chapter 2, when Joseph is warned in a dream, yet again, they all come back and they consider settling in Bethlehem. They decide that's a bad idea. They end up settling back home in Nazareth. And it says this in verse 23, the last verse in chapter two, it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, sorry, my iPad just did something weird. Okay, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the third kind of link that these, this original audience, it would have meant something to them. Now, the interesting thing about this is Matthew literally says it was spoken by the prophets, but actually, if you look back in the Old Testament, you're not gonna find any place that says he will be called a Nazarene. I think what Matthew is referring to and I don't have time to go into all of this, so this is your homework. If you're a note taker, write this down. If you don't have notes, grab a pen and write it on the palm of your hand, okay? This is what you gotta read this week. I want you to read Numbers chapter six, verses one through 21. Numbers chapter six, 
verses 1 through 21, and you're going to find there something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was something that was voluntarily undertaken by both men and women to set themselves apart in some sort of service to God, to dedicate their lives in service to God for some amount of time. And I want you to read that vow, and I want you to think about what connection Matthew might be making between Jesus, the the deliverer, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and this vow in which people were set apart in service to the Lord. And then once you've read that, I want you to go forward in your Bibles and read Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And I want you to consider what Paul writes in Romans about how we, as followers of Christ, should be set apart and how we should do that and how it looks. Okay, so number 6, verse 1 through 21, and Romans 12, 1 through 2, that's your homework for this week. And those are those three kind of passages that sort of feel like prophecies, but they're real connections between what's going on in the account in Matthew and also in the Old Testament. Now, let's get to the practical application, the practical situational application of Joseph and Mary being called out of Israel and sent off to Egypt for a time. The application is this. God always provides a way of escape. He is famous for providing ways of escape. Sometimes in miraculous, epic ways. Like whether we look at uh, the preservation of Noah and his family in the ark, whether we look at the parting of the Red Seas or the closing of the lion's mouth or any one of Jesus' many deliverances of people during his ministry or Peter being released from prison, the Lord is famous for rescuing people miraculously, providing a way of escape. And here's the thing, if we're going to follow his will in faith, if we're going to make that step of faith to follow his will, we're going to need rescuing from time to time. And sometimes that rescue is from ourselves. We need to be rescued from ourselves. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Notice it does not say God will never give you more than you can handle. He does that all the time, okay? He does that all the time. He's not saying that here. He's saying he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may may be able to endure it. Thank God for that, because we get in our own way lots and lots of times. But here's the other thing. Miraculous deliverances are not a thing of the past. They're not something that's gone that we just read about in the Bible that can't happen today. They're still a thing. If we discover what God's will is for our lives, remember, this is the best place to find it. A lot of times, it can be frightening to take that next step. And you may have thoughts of, I can't do this, or I don't have the ability to do it, or I'm not so sure because I just can't see me being this kind of person. That's baloney, all right? If the Lord is calling you to something, he's never looking for skills. He's looking for willingness. 
He's looking for obedience. And when you obey, when you are willing to follow his revealed will to you, he will provide you everything that you need, including miraculous rescue if necessary. When Daniel was rescued from the mouths of the lions, which he had no business surviving that, when he made it through that night, King Darius rejoiced that he was saved. And King Darius knew that he would be. He was so convinced that Daniel would be preserved. And he said this, for he, God, this is King Darius speaking, for he, God, is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Did you hear him say he delivers and rescues? He still does that. He's still in the business of doing that. All right, let's close this up with our final chapter, which is really an epilogue, and we're going to call it Act Now. The epilogue on this book is Act Now. I am not a psychologist or sociologist or psychiatrist in any stretch of the imagination, but I read a lot of stuff in getting ready for this message. And yeah, I feel like, uh, but I stayed in the Holiday Inn last night. Like, what is the Holiday Inn Express? Um, I read a lot of stuff. And one of the things I read, which just kind of struck me as interesting in the context of this message, is that human beings, when we are impacted in some way and we feel like there needs to be some sort of change or there needs to be some sort of response or we need to do something differently than we've done before, that if we don't do it within the first 48 hours, we probably won't. And then we won't and we won't and we won't until the next time the encouragement comes or the next impact comes. And who knows when that will be. So my encouragement to you is if you're hearing about the life of Mary and Joseph and how they had to act in faith aside from everything else they were seeing. And the Lord is tugging on your heart because there's some way in your life that you need to do the same thing. Maybe it's just coming to the Lord for the very first time. If that's you, my encouragement would be, don't wait, act now. Okay, take advantage of what the Lord is calling you to do right now. I said last week that most of us in this room don't need to be convinced that Jesus is king. We, we already recognize that. But I also think, and here's where my mirror comes back in too, because I need to say this to myself. I also think that it's really easy for us as Christians to say and believe that Jesus is the king, but then not act like it not trust him like we really are, are believing that he's the king. We have all these Herods around us that tell us otherwise and try to convince us to not follow our real king. But here's the thing, guys. Where is Herod right now? Dead, right? <laughs> Dead. They actually just found him recently. He was buried in Herodium. They found his crypt or whatever. And he's all dust and dry bones in this huge palace that he built to honor himself. And that palace is at some level preserved, but it's decaying. And someday it'll all be gone. Where is Jesus right now? That's right. Very much alive. 
sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for the command from his father to return and establish a kingdom that will never, ever end. Compare those two kings, and despite our current circumstances, which is the better one to follow? The one whose kingdom is going to last forever. Forever. Amen? We're going to have the band come up. We're going to pray in a minute. I just want to give you one last encouragement. We just passed uh, New Year's, New Year's Day. And uh, New Year's resolutions are kind of like a thing that people do sometimes. I don't know if everybody's done it, but uh, they can be, New Year's resolutions can be a really good idea. They can be a really good idea. But here's the thing about New Year's resolutions. They are only a good idea if you actually do them, right? If, they, if you don't do them, they just remain a good idea and they have really no impact or effect on our lives. And the crazy thing about that even is that you not only have to do them, but you have to keep doing them. If you do it once and then never again, then it's like still just a good idea. You gotta do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. So my encouragement to you is if you are feeling the tug to change, if you are feeling the tug to respond in some way, there's still got to be a first time. And I would love it if that first time was today. If the Lord is encouraging you to reach out to him for salvation, for courage, for ability, for provision, whatever it is that you need to step and keep following his will, I hope that you will not refuse his voice today and that you will respond to him and take that first step. Amen? Let's stand. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your word is living and active, Father. And I ask, Lord, right now all over this place and for anyone who hears this message online or ever, uh, that your word would change hearts and empower hearts to respond in courage in the face of difficult situations, Lord, whether it be circumstances in people's lives or just the fear of change or the fear of doing something, Lord. I ask that you would do a miraculous thing all over this place. Lord, I ask that, that you would cause in our minds for us to see that whatever Herods are in our lives, they compare nothing, nothing at all to the King of the universe who will reign forever, Lord. Magnify yourself in our eyes this morning and bring about a miraculous response. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's sing.